looking to the grace of God that we running to obtain his promises may indeed become partakers of his heavenly treasure. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's actually really a very sobering thing for a church to take the name of St. Luke as its patron saint. Now, St. Luke is the beloved physician, and so he is the champion of, of the healing ministry of the church. But St. Luke is also the champion of the poor. And the one who gets in the face of rich Christians and reminds them of their profound responsibility in responding to the grace that's theirs by virtue of their privilege and their responsibility to care for those who lack what they have. Now, and I, I don't think of myself as a rich Christian. That's because I live in the neighborhood next to some of Orlando's super rich. And I think of them as the rich people. But then a few years ago, Sherry and I hosted um, some of our seminary students. And among them, among them who came to dinner was uh, a gentleman from Africa who had left his family in Africa while he came to get theological training to go back and serve his community. And he walked into our house and he walked around, and he looked at, he looked at our house. And he came to me and just very innocently said, asked, how many people live here? And I said, well, five, Sherry and me and our three sons. And his jaw dropped, and he said, you know, in my country, a house this size would have 50 people living in it. Now, I wish I had a really clever response. I didn't have one then. I don't have a nice way to tie that up in a, in a nice little bow for you either. But it gave me a lot to think about. It, it was one of those points of realization that in my world, I'm not that rich. But in the world's economy, I'm filthy rich. And it so happens that Luke is writing to people like me and presumably like many others in the room. And one of the things I discovered in grad school, studying Luke quite a bit, was the literary artistry and finesse with which he writes. Luke, Luke is one of the educated elite of his day. He writes, he writes some of the highest Greek that has come to us from first century literature, period. And he is writing, the only people who can read him and keep up with him are also people of the educated and presumably wealthy elite. And what he is trying to help them and us understand is the amazing gift that is ours in Jesus Christ and therefore the amazing responsibility to steward the, the privilege that we tend to enjoy. And so he sets up this, this 
almost humorous contrast between these two men. You can't imagine a more extreme um, um, contrast in, in that world to aspire to dress in purple, the color of royalty, and while everybody else only gets to feast maybe once a year when some wealthy benefactor puts on a spread for the whole city, this fellow, every day, the the word in the the word in English here is feasted, but in Greek it's made merry. He made merry sumptuously every day, and he has built this mansion where he's got his big old gate that keeps him separated from the other people, le miserable, the the deplorables of his own day. The people who like this, the other person in the story, is simply deposited outside his door. That's what the Greek word means here when it talks about he was laid out there. He was just, he was, at this gate lay a poor man. What the Greek says is he was thrown there at his gate just to lie there, calling out alms for the poor probably. And he's not able to do anything, he's not able to do anything, even when the dogs come and lick his running sores. But Luke does two lovely things in the telling of this story. In the first place, as far as I can recall, this is the only parable that Jesus tells in which he actually gives a name to one of the characters. Now, the rich man gets no name. He's just a rich man. The poor man, his name is Lazarus, which is short for Eleazar, which means my God helps. And then what happens, the second thing that the second thing that happens here in the text is just really beautiful literarily is when the poor man dies, Luke pulls out some of his best Greek. He writes in a classical idiom that we don't really even have good translation for. He has an opening auxiliary verb and it came to pass, or there came to pass. And then he uses what in English we might translate with a gerund or an infinitive. And there came to pass the dying and the being carried up. And we just don't write that way. But you would write it in elevated Greek. And he is carried then to the bosom of Abraham. And the bosom of Abraham, most commentators think, is a picture of a, a banquet. Like, Back then, when you were at a banquet, you didn't sit at chairs, you reclined at table. And you'd, you'd rest on one elbow, usually probably this elbow, because most people back then were right-handed. You'd lie here, and then, and then you'd eat, and the person next to you would be like right here at your breast. And so he is, he is right next to Abraham, the host of this heavenly banquet. 
Whereas, by contrast with this elegant sentence describing the death of the poor man, Lazarus, all the rich man gets is just a very simple, the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Boom. Done. Just what Luke wants us to get is appearances in this life are deceiving. The person who has the elegant life, he doesn't even get a name. And all he gets is a mention of, he died, he was gone. Whereas the man who had really nothing in this life except the name, my God helps. He gets the elaborate description of his death, and his death just becomes a portal into his everlasting fellowship. And his, this one who was not allowed even to eat the scraps on this, in this life gets to feast at God's banquet. And then Luke does some really, Luke makes his own points from this, there, that there's going to be this surprising switch of situations on the other side of death. There is the decisions you make in this life, or you make them and they're irrevocable. And don't even think that if somebody came back from the dead to talk to you about what is on the other side, if you're not willing to listen to Scripture, then you're not even going to hear that. And that would be a great sermon, like, I don't know, maybe for the next time we're here at this passage. But what was really pressing upon me this last week was the way Paul unpacks wisdom for the kind of people that Jesus describes in the rich man in, in his parable. It's a lovely thing that the lectionary has done to put these two passages together on this particular day. Now, you know that Luke and Paul were traveling companions. I can imagine them just being an amazing one-two punch when they pull into town with Luke telling the stories of Jesus and Paul coming along to say, now, now let's talk about how this actually works. And what we have right here in our epistle today is Paul's words to Timothy telling him how to help rich people, the kind of people who could live in those mansions, build, you know, eat sumptuously every day, make merry every day, and build, build gates to keep them separated from everybody else. And Paul comes into their world and says, now let me be a pastor. Let me tell you how to be a pastor to these people. And what I'd like to do in, the, in just the next few minutes is just take you through the words of wisdom that Paul passes on to Timothy. Now, each, each little point could be its own sermon or classroom lecture. And each one of them deserves a, you know, a compelling story and illustration and all kinds of, of scripture quotes to support it. But every once in a while, you just got to do the shotgun thing and just put out a bunch of pellets and then let them hit where they are, where they're going to hit, and then invite you to think about it. So, first, Paul, Paul offers a gut check for the rich, and he asks us to ask three questions. One has to do with contentment. 
There's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. The question for me to ask myself, am I content? Do I have enough? If I gain no more in this life, will I be okay? The answer needs to be yes. Number two, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires. Two, am I trapped by my stuff? Do I own it or does it own me? Brothers and sisters, that's just something to think about. Who owns what? Does it own me or do I own it? Are, they, are things a certain trap for me that I just need to get rid of? Or do I really see myself in the driver's seat here? And then third in the gut check category, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You know, one of the things that we teach in seminary is to think right so that you'll believe right and live right. But the fact of the matter is people live less by what they are consciously believing and thinking. They're living more by what they love. We are a people of appetite. And we go after what we love. And it's amazing. It happens over and over again in the counseling session and in the pastor's office when a person acknowledges, here's what I believe, but here's what I do because here's what I want. And the question here is like, what do I really want in life? What do I really love? Who do I really love? And the question here is, is my life all about more? <laughs> I have more and more and want more. Or do I love the Lord? Do I love my neighbor? What is the consuming passion? Because the passion is what I'm going to go after. So am I content? Am I trapped by my stuff? And what is it that I really love? And then Paul offers this elegant interlude for the minister. Paul understands that the day is going to come when ministers will be professionally trained. They'll go to graduate school and they'll spend the same number of years and more in grad school just getting this degree that lets them get the mediocre salary that most ministers get. Now, mine is fabulous. <laughs> but there are going to be ministers who are going to be dealing with doctors and lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, who make a lot more money because of their investment in graduate school or whatever. And there's going to be this profound temptation of ministers to be envious of the rich. And then when they relate to them, to only see them as potential dollar signs to be manipulated. And so he wants Timothy to do a gut check. And so he and asks him to ask, ask Timothy to take a look at his own heart. And then also he's asking the rich to listen in. And so he tells Timothy three things. What you need to be pursuing is not money, but a certain way of being. Here's the kind of person you need to be. Righteous, godly, faithful, loving, enduring, and gentle. And then he points Timothy to three things about our great God, 
One, he is the one who gives life to all things. Two, Jesus Christ came among us and made the good confession before Pilate. The one who was rich became poor for us that he might make us rich in him. And when he could have defended himself, he didn't and went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we might live forever with him. Take your bearings from that. And then third, one day he will be manifest as King of kings and Lord of lords. And appearances as they are now will be shown to be fool's gold. And people who appear to be rich now will be shown to be not so rich. And those who are rich in Christ will be shown to be the truly wealthy. And I want you to be an example of that. And then he comes back to the rich at the end of this passage and addresses them as he has addressed other precious groups who belong to the body of Christ. He singles them out for, Here's my, here are my words of wisdom to you, Western Christians, Episcopalian Christians, people who live next door or in the neighborhood next to the super wealthy, but who are themselves actually very wealthy. He offers us four, four words of exhortation. One, don't carry yourself, don't be haughty. Don't carry yourself like you're some big deal. You're not. Two, don't place your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Realize you can't buy your way into the only banquet that really counts. All you can carry is the name, my God helps. Jesus, Yahweh saves. That's my hope. That's my ticket to the banquet. Third, he says, do good, be rich in good works. I'm called on to ask myself, what good can my wealth do in the world, in my community, in my church family? And then fourth, finally, be generous and ready to share. I don't know what that means for you. I mean, maybe it means like, I don't know, maybe being a big tipper. Christians don't need to be the people who leave the track and then the, you know, the penny. Christians need to be the ones who err on the generous side when we tip. Christians need to be the ones who have the bumper sticker, not the bumper sticker that says, you know, that says Jesus saves and then cut people off on the highway. We need to be the people, if we've got the bumper sticker, that yield and say, hey, bless you, take the place. And I don't know, maybe it means looking at what you gave last year and say, you know, I can, I can add a little bit this year. I can... Whatever it is, to like open my heart, to open my heart and like maybe take a look at the people who don't live in the nicer neighborhood, but the neighborhood that I would rather not live in, especially where my brothers and sisters are, where I can do them good. Let me, let me pray in closing 
the prayer that we prayed at the beginning of this service, that we may perhaps hear it with new ears. O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever.